our needs, wants, and desires before Him. It's time that we gather together in order to pray for the church and the ministry throughout the world. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, for Your grace and truth, Your mercy upon us as we gather and we come not only confessing our sins, not only calling You to come and dwell among us, but also, O Lord, we gratefully come before Your almighty throne. As children of the Most High God, we come asking humbly of Your help in this world around us. We begin, O Lord, by thinking of our own civil government that You have placed over us. We think, O Lord of the the President of the United States, Mr. Biden. We pray, O Lord, for him and his administration that you, O Lord, would grant grace upon him and bestow upon him wisdom as it relates to ruling over us well. We pray, O Lord, that by his rule, the American people would prosper and prosper well. The church would flourish. We pray, O Lord, that you would bestow upon him grace in these matters. We pray that you would restrain his hand, O Lord, whenever it comes to hurting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and not promoting its good prosperity. But we pray, O Lord, that you'd give him wisdom to rule as a common minister throughout all this land. We pray for grace and truth to reign upon him and his mind. We also pray, O Lord, for the the work of the church throughout our community. Today we pray, O Lord, for Mosaic Health as they seek, O Lord, to protect the unborn among us. We pray for the unborn that... You, O Lord, would change our culture of death found within perhaps our own community, but greater in our our larger society. We pray, O Lord, for those who are pregnant, contemplating uh, abortion, that you, O Lord, would guide them and send them to Mosaic Health and other pregnancy centers that could help show them the life that they have within the womb. We pray, O Lord, for all within the womb, that you protect them, but not only that you protect them, O Lord, that You grant them salvation, setting them apart, O Lord, even now, to worship with their tongues the true and the living God. We also pray, O Lord, in that same vein for those who are lost within our community. We pray, O Lord, for those within the greater St. Louis area that you would use the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to expand the kingdom in the visible sense on this earth even now. We pray, O Lord, that you use our church to this end and those within our church to be witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth, including our own community. Lord, be gracious to us. Give us zeal. Give us excitement. Give us grace and mercy as we seek to represent you here on this earth. We also pray, O Lord, for our church. We pray for the children's ministry that you have placed under us. You have blessed this congregation, O Lord, with a bountiful harvest of children and youth. And we pray, O Lord, that we would not waste that great opportunity. That you, O Lord, even now would continue to raise up these little ones in the faith. That they would not know a day apart from you. We pray, O Lord, for their Sunday school teachers. That you give them grace and mercy. That you give them wisdom, insight, and knowledge as they disciple the youngest among us. We pray, O Lord, that through their witness, through their example, that our children, our youth, would know you and know you well. We also, O Lord, pray for help. We pray, O Lord, for those who have severed and fractured relationships within the congregation. We pray that by your spirit of truth and by your mercy, we, O Lord, would rectify and resolve our broken and sinful 
um, uh, distrust perhaps for one another or fractured relationships therein. We also, O oh Lord, pray for the mothers in our congregation. We all, O oh Lord, have mothers and we lift them up to you now, but we also pray for the mothers in our congregation as well as those who perhaps desire the, the, the great honor of motherhood, but perhaps have it withheld for a moment, even at this time, for whatever reason that might be. We pray, O oh Lord, then for the women of our congregation. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give them a greater sense of nurturing within their own homes, that you'd give them a greater joy to be exhibited within their own families, within the church. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the women's ministry that helps facilitate and nurture such relations. But we pray, O oh Lord, for your grace and mercy upon our households and the work that is found in. We also thank you, O oh Lord, as we think of help. We thank you, O oh Lord, for the, the healing that Larry uh, Rogers is experiencing with his ear. We thank you for his service to our church, but also for his continued high spirit as he continues to serve even in the midst of, of the treatment that he had earlier last week. We also, O oh Lord, thank you for the return and, and the, the apparent well-being of of Joanne Ostendorf. We thank you for the good doctor's report last week and we pray that you continue to give her strength as she comes to worship you, but also, O Lord, with every day today. We thank you, O Lord, for your grace and mercy upon us. And we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 uh, is uh, the part within the book of Philippians where, where Paul decides to actually call out by name those who had caused division within the church. I thought it to be of interesting providence that today, of all days, a day that we commonly celebrate as a hallmark holiday, would be a, a passage where Paul chastises women. Women that were perhaps likely mothers within the congregation. But this is not the connection I hope you make from the text today. This is, if you do, this is not your typical Mother's Day sermon. Uh, this will not be that. And so I, I warn you now that this is meant for all of us. Not just the mothers, but also the husbands and the children and all within our congregation. Stand with me as we hear this brief passage from Philippians chapter Verse 1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia, I entreat, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. As you're seated, we are reminded in this passage of perhaps pastoral diplomacy. A pastor who is far away seeking to rectify and restore diplomatic relations within the congregation. 
If you've ever studied diplomacy, you've probably heard some pithy statements from diplomats on what diplomacy is. Some have said it is the patriotic art of lying for one's country. Others have said it's the art of saying nice doggy until you can go grab a stone or stick. Others have even said diplomacy is the art of letting someone else have your way. Well, is this the diplomacy that Paul has within this passage? If we look at the world around us, we see that diplomacy often fails. If you look at the war in Ukraine and elsewhere, diplomacy often fails. I'm a big, ba- uh, big fan of board games, and one of the most divisive board games on all the earth has the name Diplomacy. I remember when I bought it in college, I thought this would be a great game for my friends. You see, diplomacy, as the board game has it, is like risk without the die. You don't have dice in diplomacy. Instead of rolling die in order to advance and win, you use relationships. And so you'd expect, after gathering six to eight of my friends, we would gather together and try to make treaties with one another, only to the next turn to stab that same man that we had made diplomatic relationships with. It was a game of self-interest and intrigue. And it was a game that even after one of us won, we all went away angry. I remember standing with a friend, conniving, planning to destroy another friend only for the next turn, then to stab him in the back and many others. Diplomacy. It often fails. But what is the type of diplomacy that Paul hopes to ensure within the church of Philippi? I think he hopes for a greater resolution, maybe perhaps not as the world defines it here. He seeks to wield diplomacy, not for self-righteous gain or self-gain, but perhaps to restore the church of Philippi by seeking to point their diplomatic end, not towards themselves, but towards Christ and His glory. You see, the diplomacy here, maybe better defined as reconciliation, is a work found within the church. And Paul calls us, as he calls these women, to pursue reconciliation at all costs for the sake of the mission and ministry of the church. You see, I've said it many times, as Paul has alluded to it in Philippians before, but now he names names. He's worried that if these women continue to turn their sights on to one another, that the mission and ministry of the work of the church would be fractured and jeopardized. If you don't fix what's found within, then your witness to the community around you will flounder because you're just looking and pointing fingers at one another. But what is the issue with these women? It is a personality issue. When personalities clash, as they often do within the church, issues and division arise. It happens with all of us. If I can go around in this room, have you ever clashed with another person in this church? Is there there certain people, as it relates to your personality and their personality, that it's like oil and water. It just doesn't mix. You just don't like them. It's not anything they've done. Just who they are. Have you ever had a relationship like that? Have you ever jumped ugly, as we would say in the South, with someone in this congregation? As my friend would say, yeah, on the inside. Maybe perhaps not on the outside. You see, even as you have a transition with a new minister here, you might find his own personality something that's to struggle with. Scott, he's just too type A, too organized. It just Nothing is free-flowing. He's too thoughtful, over-analyzing just about everything, conversations, relationships people, meetings. 
What do you do when there are two equally good ideas within the congregation? Two equally good ideas, but you can only choose one. What do you do when there is an impasse within the body of Christ? Which do you choose? How do you solve impasse? These are all the things that Paul seeks to solve in Philippi. They are at an impasse. And instead of dominating one another for their own selfish ends, they are called to tether themselves to one another in the Lord Jesus Christ, letting down their own self-interests. Today's passage is then about relationships. A great Sunday passage. Yes, it is about sin. It's not a grave error, but it's about relationships and how we maintain them. So when your personality clashes in the church, I'm going to ask you to give up your own self-interests. Why should you give up your own self-interest? Well, we see quite a few ideas of why within the passage today. First, it is because we must stand firm together. That is what we see in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I want you to notice Paul's repetition here. My, 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 my. My brothers whom I love, my crown, my joy, my beloved. You see, Paul, as he is about to deliver some very difficult news to two ladies in the church, as a minister stands up and says their names publicly, he wants to ensure his relationship with them. How does he think of the Philippians? He says they are my brothers. They're my brothers and sisters. You are a congregation who I see as my own ilk, my own family. You see the familial nature, and they are not estranged like Esau and Jacob. They are close. I love them. I long for them. I want to be with them. Notice also, not only does he call them brothers that he loves, he calls them joy. In a previous passage, as we read it together, Paul says, complete my joy. He says, complete my joy because the Philippians are his joy. As he thinks about the church, joyous thoughts come into his mind about the labors there. Why? Because he has seen people converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has seen their genuine love for one another. they, They are his joy. And the division within the church is jeopardizing the future of that joy, not in perhaps the eternal sense, but in the painful sense. There is joy. My favorite image is they are his crown. I I think you might think naturally of the metal regal crowns of European monarchs made of precious metals. But Paul is referring back to the previous passage as it relates to a festive garland. That's the kind of crown he has in mind, a a crown that represents gladness and victory. It's interesting that Paul, before he gives perhaps very hard and difficult news to the church and how to rectify their disagreement between two ladies and their groups, calls them my crown. You are my victory. It's a perplexing statement. You think that, as we've heard in the previous passage, when Paul is running the race in order to achieve the crown, he is merely talking about everlasting life. But in some sense, Paul also recognizes that the Philippian church itself is his crown. Why? It's because he hopes that in the Philippian church, Those who'd come to the Lord Jesus Christ will join him in everlasting life. They are a witness that he has not ran the race in vain, that he has been faithful in his work, and that one day he will see them face to face together before God declaring his victory. They are his crown. They are prized 
a prized congregation. Paul rarely talks about any other church in the New Testament like he talks about the Philippians. Crown, joyous, brothers, beloved. Maybe the, the chasm, the chiasm here, starting with love, ending with love, everything in between. That is how Paul sees the church here, with gladness and victory. Calvin once said, it's one of my favorite quotes for a minister, is, the ministry is more important to me than life itself. The ministry is more important to me than life itself. And that's what Paul is saying here. The ministry, your ministry, is, is imperative to my life. I want it to prosper and to prosper well. You all have relationships, and I assume that you all miss some people. Unless you're sociopathic, you miss some people sometimes. Whenever I go down south for a men's con a pastor's conference in Jackson, uh, I'm gone for a week and I'm apart from my family. And the same emotion arises within me near the end of that week. It's the desire, it's the yearning within my soul. It's the longing to be back with my family. My, my mind dwells upon happy memories with my children and my wife. And my mind just starts to dwell. And, and one of the worst parts about leaving Jackson is knowing that I have, at least now, a, a six-hour drive back. I have to be in my own mind's eye for the next six hours as I long to be with my family. My mind is overwhelmed. It is drawn. I am drawn back home. That's what Paul is using as familial language here, drawn back. He is drawn to the Philippians in love. He wants them to know before he gives them a, a, a slight chastisement of his relation with them. He loves them. If you want, in order to rectify clashes of personality within the congregation, you must learn to love one another. That whenever there is an issue that arises that might cause rebuke or correction or confrontation, it must be from a place of love. And it is imperative that you ensure that you communicate that it is from a place of love. It is sometimes easy to be bitter and divisive within the church and just start with the criticism. But Paul starts with the positive. He starts with his loving view of the church. That is how he can encourage them to stand firm. Love one another. How can you stand firm? How can you overcome personality issues? It is through your love for one another. It is by being self-sacrificial, a love that you see in verse 1 that is grounded in Christ himself. How did Christ love? That we did not love, but that he loved us first. He gave down his life that we might have life in him. We must love like Paul loves, like Christ loves. We must love one another selflessly. That is how the church stands firm. We must learn to love. When personalities clash in the church, I call you to give up your own self-interest. Do you do this, or why should you do this? Because we must stand together, but also we must agree in the Lord. This is an interesting relational motif that Paul calls these women to. Verse 2 is so short, but it is so impactful. It, it, hits, it hits hard. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What flows from Paul's mind of love and unity, is, is, it is entreating these women to reconcile. The word translated here for entreat is like urges. He urges them. He encourages them. He begs of them to resolve their issues and to agree 
in the Lord. Paul starts with his love. He starts with his love because he is about to deliver difficult news, and it is by name-dropping these two ladies. I couldn't imagine the, the action I would, and the horror that I would receive if I started name-dropping you in this sermon. It'd be an uncomfortable experience for all of us. I, I imagine as these women heard this letter read by the pastor, as we'll see his name in the next verse, as they hear the letter read, they were probably up until verse 1 of chapter 4 thinking of the other party. If only Iodia fixed my problem. If she just bent her knee and did my way, we'd all be good. And Syntyche was saying the same thing. If only Iodia would humble herself and come to me and resolve this issue, it would be all good. It's so easy when you hear a sermon to deflect. How many times have I heard, oh, preacher, if, if my, my sister needed to be here to hear that. Well, no, you needed to hear it as well. And so Paul drops their names, Iodia. Syntyche, how, what a great way to be remembered in scriptures, being the quarrelsome ladies that divided the church of Philippi. I, I could just imagine if I asked the children in this congregation to take out their paper and to start drawing the faces of what these women looked like as they read their names in the pulpit, you just imagine, they would all look the same and it would just be mouth wide open gaping. I can't believe it. Paul's referencing me by name and it's not a good thing. You see, in the ancient world, you never drop names. And when you had an issue with someone, when you hated them, you never dropped their name. Why didn't you drop their name? It is because you don't, they don't, you, their name doesn't even deserve to come out of your mouth. You never said names. You never named names in the ancient world. When you wrote a treaty against someone, you lamb-blasted their thoughts, and you made sure they knew it was about them, but you never said their name. You worked hard at that. And so what, what I see in Paul saying their name, it is important to note why he says their name. He says their name because they are not his enemies. He doesn't view these ladies as enemies. If you look at verse 3, as we'll get to in a moment, he views them as co-laborers, as workers. He views them as great women within the church. He views them as assets, not false teachers. What do we know about these ladies, though? We don't know much. I've read many commentaries, probably too many commentaries on these ladies, and there's not much to know, despite all the pages I read. What we can know, they were great standing, maybe foundational members, probably charter members of the church. If you looked at the Church of Philippi stained glass windows, their names were engraved in them. They were important co-workers to Paul, and at one point, they were the best of friends and worked hard together. They, they were assets. When they were together, when they weren't oil and water, their ministry was on fire. And because they are now divided, it has undone the work that they had sought to do. There was an important disagreement, but we don't know what it is. Paul spares us of the details. He doesn't gossip. It's not important enough to even name. It's not false teaching. If he views their work so well, we can lastly understand that Paul reveres these ladies. Sometimes when we disagree within the church, it is not theological. It is interpersonal and relational. Two great ideas. Which way to go? I think we must follow the Lord this way. I think we must follow the Lord that way. Two equally great biblical ideas. But where is the Lord leading? That's the kind of issue that Iodia and Syntyche are dealing with within this passage. And Paul is not picking sides. I find it amazing. Paul doesn't pick any sides. He just says, get your act 
together. Lay down your positions and agree in the Lord. Paul isn't calling for the church to uniformity. He isn't saying they must have the same thoughts. But he is saying, as he has said throughout this passage, that they must have the same or similar temperament. They must have the same goals. They must have the same view and mindset of the world. They must work to overlook personal grievances for the sake of the gospel. They must learn to agree in the Lord, to agree with what the Lord agrees with. Paul would know this very personally and intimately. He doesn't write as a person who has all his relationships together. If you go back in the book of Acts, Paul has a massive blow-up with Barnabas over um, John Mark. And Paul is debating who to bring with him on his second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to give John Mark the opportunity to come with. But Paul, being Paul, said, I've seen John Mark in action. And last time he came with me on a missionary journey, he only got a few steps before going back to Jerusalem. I don't want that guy. It's a personal issue for Paul. I don't want to have to deal with him as a liability. And Barnabas pushing Paul, saying, this could be a different time. John Mark has grown as he returned to Jerusalem. He is an asset to the gospel. We need him. It blows up Paul and uh, Barnabas' relationship, so much so that Paul and Silas go one way and Barnabas and John Mark go another way. And does it end like that, though? Do they end the, with their interpersonal disagreement? Is that how the story ends? No. What is great irony here is that John Mark is with Paul in Rome ministering to him. The man that he had no faith in continuing is a man that had proved himself well in Barnabas and proved himself well to the point, to the chagrin of Paul. So much so that he is the one that is helping keep Paul alive in prison. From a liability to a massive asset, Paul was wrong. We see he could have been wrong about the value of John Mark. Paul, it would have been on top of Paul's mind as he wrote with John Mark in the rear view or just right beside him. He would have known his own issues. And he would have known what drew them back together for the ministry. And it was agreement in the Lord, loving one another, learning to love one another, learning to love and trust Barnabas as well as John Mark, a fellow worker. Please let then these frictions cease, as Paul says, basically. Unite in the Lord. We could all probably do better at agreeing in the Lord. Again, I'm not calling to you to uniformity. That is an impossible call. If, if we called this church to uniformity, it would just be me on Sunday. Or maybe one of you that is closest to being like me. Not many of you, though. Because we are all different. Paul is calling us towards agreement in the Lord. And so what do you do when your relationship is at an impasse, when you cannot resolve a disagreement? Uh, what, what happens when you enter the sanctuary as it is this children's cafeteria, and you don't even want to be in the same room as another believer? Well, what do you do? Well, we have Paul's gentle reminder to Yodia and Syntyche to lay down your personal strife, because there is a reminder that it's not just them that are involved in this issue, but the Lord himself. And when the Lord is in the party, when he is the one that is also included in our disagreements, we must learn that even as tense as a situation may be, we must lower ourselves as we exalt Christ, reminding one another that we are all citizens of the kingdom 
of heaven. You see, your petty disagreements, as petty as they may seem or as great as you may think them, also include the Savior within them. And he is in the middle of these two women pleading by his Spirit for unity to come forth. The last thing we learn, though, is when personalities clash, giving up our self-interest, we lastly learn that we must help one another. Paul doesn't expect to wave his wand of hocus-pocus and everything is well. He now, at the end of verse, or in the thirst of thir- verse 3, says what he hopes to happen. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, Paul commissions a person within the congregation to be the path towards reconciliation for these two ladies. You see, perhaps in the ESV, that that, that phrase is translated true companion, but other translators would translate that as a proper name. Paul is naming an actual figure, Syzygus. And why Paul is naming perhaps a a particular figure, Syzygus, is he's hoping that Syzygus, the name of this person whose translation is true companion, can live up to his name. Syzygus, pastor of Philippi, will you live up to your name by being a true companion? The, 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 The very literal definition of this is the yoke fellow, the one that yokes people together. The companion, Syzygus, will he be the one that draws this issue to a close. Paul uses names ironically throughout the New Testament. You think of Philemon as he's writing to the slaveholder. He uses Onesimus' name, which means useful in the letter. And this is what he says, Onesimus, useful, who was once useless, has become useful to you and me. Paul likes to ironically use names, and I believe he is using the name of true companion here ironically. There is a person in the congregation by name who is called to live up to that name. The person perhaps reading this letter to the congregation, as he gets to these words, he realizes, oof, it is not just a chastisement to these difficult parties that now I have to have my skin in the game here. I have to work at resolution within the church. Sometimes... We seek to intervene in problems that we find within the church, but they are often unhelpful. How often have you heard and received juicy gossip, delightful gossip from someone within this church, of the leaders or perhaps someone else within the congregation? How delightful is it to receive a report that cuts down? It's almost delectable. I'm reminded of a great Dallas church split. If you've been to seminary, you hear this story all the time whenever interpersonal relationships come up. But a a, a church in Dallas made the papers when they decided to split. They they had a lawsuit that would go all the way up to their highest uh, church court, and they, they would litigate it. And it was so, so big of a problem that it would spew over into the local newspaper. But what happened and what caused this church split is the most striking part of the story. And what came out in the records from the litigation at the church council was that why this church was splitting was because an elder received a smaller piece of ham than a child next to him. It divided the church. It became the ham people and the not ham people. So much so that the church would split and there would be a new church formed over a potluck meal or a covered dish if you're in the South. 
we can divide over all sorts of things. And when you think of that church in Dallas, it's not just one or two people that cause a split like that. It is something that is stirred within the congregation, receiving reports. Being dishonored with a small piece of ham at a potluck can turn into bitter grievances against those who dished it. And then the whole thing churns when gossip is received within the body and spread out throughout the body. Instead, though, instead of being like that, we are called in this passage to create a culture of help. We are to help one another, like Syzygus is to help these women resolve their issue by yoking them back together, by creating a culture that seeks resolution and reconciliation. Paul is charging the past one of the ministers or one of the leaders of this church to do whatever it takes to reunite this one, these women. Do whatever it takes. Ken Sand, a, a counselor, wrote a book called Peacemaker. I commend it all to you. It is a, a great piece of work as it encourages this type of culture within the church. He, he says this that is very provocative for us. What are you really living for? It's crucial to realize that you're either glorifying God or you glorify something or someone else. And you always make something in your life look big. If you don't glorify God, when you're involved in a conflict, you inevitably show that someone or something else rules your heart. Who do you glorify in your conflict? How do you resolve disagreements within the church. Again, this is not about false teachers. You look at the last closing verse of verse 3, it says they are all written in the book of life to Paul's understanding. These are all true believers. These are women then who deserve to be assisted. They deserved to be assisted because they were noble women within the congregation. We deserve to be assisted when we are in disagreement with one another. We deserve it. We deserve to come alongside and to reconcile so that the church could flourish and flourish well. Earlier this week, I was on social media, and you know how social media is, and you read things that just make you angry. And I read a, a statement from another pastor and was immediately angered by it. I didn't reach out to the minister because you know how, how we are. Uh, but I was angered by it. I, I sent the, the, the social media post to another friend and said, Can you believe this? Can you believe this is found within our own denomination? And he said he, he was just as angry as me. We both were working each other up. And then a few hours later, he said, uh, Scott, you know, this phrase is actually kind of ambiguous, and it could be interpreted like this. This would be a much more charitable way to interpret what he was saying. And after I read uh, the, the social media post with charity, I realized how ridiculous I was. You see, perhaps I didn't like this minister and I put on those rose-colored glasses that everything he had ever said was bad. How, how often is that our case when we don't like someone? Everything they do is bad and terrible and difficult. My friend, and what I appreciate his work in my own life as a helper, helped me remove those rose-colored glasses to have a, a, a fresh and sobering approach. Led me to Repentance. Because I had sinned, being angry when I shouldn't have been angry because of how I viewed 
another person. Is that true within even our own church? Is there someone you don't like within our own congregation this morning that everything they do just grinds your gears, gets you angry, gets you upset, is hurtful to you? Well, Paul has an application. We must learn to have a culture of help. And that starts with us, but it includes everyone here. Ken Sand concludes in promoting this idea of a culture of help in peacemakers by saying these are the things that we must pursue in a culture of forgiveness. We must say in our hearts and our minds, I will not pursue this incident further. How do you protect the unity of the church? How do you continue its prosperity? It is not pursuing incidents when we feel wronged in them. It is also an idea that I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. Driving the knife deeper. Remember that one time, Pastor, when you did that? I will not talk about others about this incident. That's probably the most popular. Love to gossip. And I will not allow this incident, most importantly, to stand between us and hinder our relationship in the Lord. The most important. We cannot let the seeds of sin sow because when we think about the incident, that leads us to talking about the incident, which leads us to using that incident against one another. And then that creates the personal distrust and fractured relationships as they are in Philippi, but also our own congregation. We must pursue a culture of forgiveness by killing sin at its root. Even when we are wrong, we need others in our lives instead of stoking the fire of distrust within our congregation saying maybe we can interpret what they said like this. When your personalities clash within the church, give up your own self-interests. It's because we must stand together. We must agree in the Lord, and we must help one another. When we do all those things, our church will remain united. It is what will unite the Philippians, and it is what will unite us. But when we clash, and no doubt we will clash, we will clash, this is human nature, we are sinful, we must learn to implement a little pastoral diplomacy. Setting aside our own self-interest, reminding ourselves of the love that we are called in Scripture to have for one another in order to stand firm. Learning to agree in the Lord, learning to help one another. We must set aside all our grievances for a little pastoral diplomacy. If you're an unbeliever in our congregation today, you might say, well, I have seen the church. I have looked at the church, and it seems like y'all are a mess. You may wonder why these sinfully broken people remain together. And it's because the adhesive that holds us together is greater than ourselves. It is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that binds us. He is the one that binds this eclectic group of people that if they weren't believers would have nothing to do with one another together. He's the one that binds. And he is the one that will reconcile. If you're an unbeliever today, I promise this is not a perfect church. I know it. But I hope that I could promise you that we will be a faithful church. A church that pursues not our own interests, but the interests of Christ. But for those who are in Christ today, perhaps a majority here, I'm speaking to the choir, what is keeping you from reconciling with your neighbor today? What is keeping you 
from healing past hurted relationships? What is keeping you within this congregation from being a peacemaker instead of a gossiper? What is keeping this church sick? Today, if you hear his voice, come to one another. Lay down your own interests and come and call upon him in grace. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. I don't know the ins and outs of every relationship within our congregation, O Lord, but you do. And we call upon you in the absence of my own knowledge or the knowledge of others to reconcile us to one another as you've reconciled us to yourself. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.